Bible reading this morning is from uh, the book of John, uh, chapter 7. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead, judge correctly. Thanks, Caitlin. Well, we're continuing our John series, um, which we had a pause from last week, but... uh, uh, today we pick up on uh, a passage, and Flick, Flick preached actually two weeks ago on the previous passage. I just want to remind you of what happened there. Um, we learned that Jesus was in Galilee and had been avoiding the Jewish leaders in Judea who were trying to kill him. Um, but the big festival of the uh, Jewish ta- the, the tabernacles, the big Jewish festival, was about to start. And Jesus' brothers were urging him uh, to stop hiding because they'd thought to themselves, you've got a big ministry, you've got a big um, authority and leadership to exercise in the world, stop hiding. Go and perform miracles, win lots of people over to believe in you. And Jesus rejects their suggestion, saying it wasn't God's timing for him to do that. And it says that even his own brothers did not believe him. In other words, they didn't really trust in Jesus' claims in his plans, in his methods. And the surprising part of the story is that after his brothers did leave for the festival, then Jesus actually does go along to the festival in secret after he said that it wasn't the right timing. And when he gets there, there are already Jewish leaders looking out for him, trying to catch him. Um, There is a plot against him already. They're looking for him to break the Jewish law. And there's crowds whispering about him. Uh, His fame had already become big. Some were speaking well of him. Others were spreading rumours about him, that he was a con man. And the big point that Flick makes is that, last two weeks ago, was that Jesus doesn't conform to our expectations. He didn't even conform to his brother's expectations. And that we need to trust him when he says and does things his own way, in his own methods, in his own timing. And this brings us to verse 14, where we're up to. So let's have a look at verse 14 in the booklet. 
Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. So it looks like Jesus was actually okay with stepping back into the spotlight because in this very crowded place in the temple courts where he's certainly going to be noticed, he started to teach. It seems that he was delaying the moment not because he was timid or, you know, afraid or nervous, but because he's trying to actually maximise the crowds. I used to um, play pub gigs a lot when I was a younger fella, all the time. And my band would have this thing we knew, this secret of playing pub gigs. Often you'd be put on a bill with several bands, you see. Often it would be three bands. It would be the 9 o'clock spot, the 10 o'clock spot and the 11 o'clock spot. And there's a kind of an unwritten rule that the, the later you are in the bill, the more sort of prestigious that position is in the, in, the, in the night. So you are the better band, or everyone's here to see the last band. But the thing is, you don't want to be the last band necessarily on a gig, because if you're in the middle spot, you'll get the biggest crowd, because you'll get the people who are there for the 9 o'clock band, and the people who are there for the 11 o'clock band. And you also know that all the old, oldies in their 30s go home, <laughs> go home because they've got work the next day, so you end up playing to a small crowd. What we used to do is maximise the crowd. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's waiting until halfway through the festival. He's waiting until the, this religious party is pumping. And then he stands up and starts preaching. The main temple building where he went was surrounded by all these several outer courts, uh, including the court of women, the court of the Israelite men and the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus is most likely teaching in one of the outer courts to the Judean crowds as well as to the Jewish authorities. And we've got no idea what he actually preached about, but it doesn't say. Nevertheless, I'm sure it would have taken your breath away to have heard him. Because it, look at their reaction, verse 15. The Jews there were amazed. And they asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught. John does not give us any previous example of Jesus teaching in Jerusalem. So it's possible that this is the first time that he does it. And so they're amazed because they've never heard any teaching like this before. And they're more astounded because um, he taught so well and yet according to their knowledge he hadn't been through their rabbi system. That, that, that he had not sat under any formal teaching of a rabbi that, that they were aware of. He had not gone through the ordination processes. He had not jumped through the hoops of the diocese. And now, here he is preaching. Now, can I, I can identify a little bit with this reaction because for the first decade of my ministry, I was not ordained. And then I had not gone to Bible college either. And then the Archbishop offered to ordain me without jumping through those hoops. And so when I got ordained, I had a lot of people looking at me strangely like, you have not gone through the system. I'm not sure if this is right. And there are a lot of Anglican people who are obsessed with process, I have to say. Um, they're, they're attracted to it. They're, you know those types, the bureaucrat type people. And they hate it when people get away with not ticking the boxes. My, my situation was a little bit different to Jesus because I'm not Jesus, of course, and they, they weren't blown away in amazement at my preaching. But also, also I, when I did preach, I, I stood behind the authority of the scriptures, you see. 
And, you know, there are lots of, lots of books and other teachers that I could, you know, theologians that I could look to. But Jesus, on the other hand, spoke with a unique authority when he preached. He didn't say, the rabbis say this and that, and that's how I get my point. Rather, Jesus would often begin his teaching and preaching by saying something like, you've heard it was said by other rabbis, but I tell you, or I tell you the truth, or truly, truly, I tell you. And so the author, John, he's, he's presenting a, like an ironic picture here because the crowd is essentially calling Jesus an uneducated ignoramus who hasn't been through the system, hasn't been to college, and, and yet he happens to be preaching amazingly. But also, when we read the Gospel of John, a, a, a reminder, the key to unlock the Gospel of John always is to go back to the first 18 verses of the first chapter. And that sort of gives us the, the clues to everything else in the whole gospel. And what does John tell us? He tells us that Jesus is the incarnate logos. Uh, the Greek word for which is translated in the Bible is the word, capital W. Um, he is the embodiment, the, the, the personification of the wisdom and majesty of the genius of God. So he certainly has the authority to preach. And Jesus comes back at them, making this exact point. Verse 16, Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. He says, The words that I speak come from God. I'm not self-taught, he says. Because if, if he said he was self-taught or that he was being original, they would have called him arrogant and he would have been discredited. It's like writing an essay and not having any footnotes. You just sort of make stuff up. It's not very convincing. But Jesus had the ultimate footnote because his footnote was God himself, his Father in heaven. So Jesus is not like any other rabbi who's been through the system. He's unique. And it's interesting to think about what, where God the Father sent God the Son. He sent him to work as a carpenter, to do a trade. He didn't send him to Oxford, you know, to come out with a PhD and then to start his ministry. Because if, you know, if he had gone through some kind of academic tradition, it might have distracted the people from the, the beauty of the gospel. Is this some guy's you know, amazing book that they've come up with? No, this is a carpenter who's now changing the world with the true wisdom of God. And, and this might be why Jesus also cho chose to have as his 12 um, apostles relatively uneducated men. Um, these were apostles who he taught personally and, and he changed them through his teaching, making them into these remarkable preachers and missionaries who were like angels that had descended from heaven. You know, <laughs> how did they get this stuff? Well, it, it's come from their teacher, Jesus. Jesus continues in verse 17. He says, Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So Jesus' point is that you're, you're not going to be able to test his teaching by looking at other rabbis and their, and their writings. Um, people who try and test the truth of Jesus' words like it's something that you can put under a microscope and work it out as an academic problem, they never really get to the, the heart of knowing in their heart, in their gut, if, if his words are true. It's not purely academic, what Jesus is saying. It's actually more practical. It's... What Jesus says and teaches has a moral dimension. 
So he's saying if you're prepared to do God's will, then you will know whether his teaching is of human or divine origin. And this is the story of my faith journey. So when I was younger, in my mid-20s, I think I, I often, uh, the way I, I lived out my faith was I knew it in my head first, but then my heart sort of dragged behind. And little bit by little bit, I tried to conform my heart to my head. So in other words, living out what I'm, I'm knowing to be true um, and being obedient. And it often took me a long time, and it still does. And an example of this is in the area of money. So in my um, early, early, early to mid-twenties, um, I knew in my head that a Christian disciple should be sacrificial with their finances. And part of that is giving financially to the ministry of the church, giving to the poor, um, giving to those who are serving, um, serving the poor, giving to justice organisations. That's part of the sacrificial life of the Christian. But I, as of yet, had not started doing it. Um, and there was one day when I was walking down, I remember in the CBD, walking down Elizabeth Street, and I'd, I think I'd been at uni or something, I can't remember, but um, this sort of 18-year-old um, guy comes up to me and starts asking me for money. And you know how that sometimes happens in the city. Um, and he just started talking to me and I started talking back to him and he explained to me that his mother had kicked him and his brother out of home for various reasons. They were living on the street. And I had this overwhelming sense in that time, a really strong feeling that I should give him money. I, and I, I thought to myself, oh, there's probably a million reasons why I shouldn't. Who knows what he's going to do with his money? Um, he'd probably just use it for drugs. I didn't have all those thoughts. This time I thought, no, I, th I really feel I need to give this person money. And so as a young guy in his 20s, I went to the ATM and I put in my card and I withdrew $200. I can still remember, $200. At that time for me, it was a massive amount of money, $200, and I gave it to him. And then he was like shocked. And then we went and had lunch together as well. And then after that, um, after he left that day, for the rest of the day, I remember feeling this overwhelming joy, this sort of peace and I had no idea what ended up happening with that money. I had no idea of <laughs> the wisdom of that. I just felt like I had to be, I, live out my faith and trust in God that um, to be sacrificial is part of the Christian life. I'd always known this in my head, but I'd never really lived that out, at least with my finances. And what that did was that, that sort of changed in me something. Like I, It was like, yes, what, Je what Jesus is saying about money is true. Um, you know, I need to just be more generous and, and, and sacrificial because it's not really my money, it's God's money anyway and I need to trust in God. And that enabled me to then become uh, a regular financial giver to my church. It, it, it enabled me, it just gave me the freedom to do that. This is what it means. This is what Jesus is talking about. He says if you live out the will of God, if you, if you are obedient to him, then you'll really know if what he says is true or if it's just made up. Christian discipleship is not merely thinking about ideas. It also involves acting on them. So a question you should also always ask yourselves in your community groups is, um, what is the application and what are we going to do this week when you're, when you're reading the Bible? Don't get stuck in the ideas. It's living it out that Jesus cares about. 
And Jesus himself applies this to his own life. John records this back in chapter 5, verse 19. He says, Very truly I tell you, the Son cannot do anything by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. Even Jesus lives out a godly life by being obedient to his Father in heaven, so you should too. Look at verse 18. Jesus continues. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Jesus is saying that his listeners, the Jews, can check what he's saying by looking to see if he's trying to self-promote. Jesus says that anyone whose message originates from himself is usually seeking to promote himself. On the other hand, if the, the person who's concerned with promoting with the one, with God, who sent him is very different. The one who seeks the glory of God is a man of truth, says Jesus. And notice Jesus does not say that he is speaking the truth. He's actually saying that he is true. If you are a true person, then there is no unrighteousness in you. There is nothing false in you. And by implication, the, the reverse of this is true as well. The, the Jewish authorities who were in Judea at the time, in whom there certainly was unrighteousness, they must not, therefore, be people who are true. The idea is that the thing that displays the glory of God is holy and divine. But the thing that adds to the ambition and promotion of human beings, the thing that exalts people, in fact, obscures the glory of God. Therefore, it has no claim to be believed and should definitely be rejected. Thinking back to my band days again, it's the dilemma of the, the Christian rock band. Because the rock star is the person, think of Elvis or Mick Jagger or someone, or, you know, Lady Gaga, who's trying to be the centre of attention. Um, and, and for a Christian rock band who's trying to emulate their rock star heroes, they find themselves in an uh, you know, existential crisis because how do you simultaneously have teenage girls screaming at you and also promote the glory of God? And so um, it was always a, a big dilemma for us, and it's funny to think about it. But more importantly, let's think about ourselves. Anybody who's exercising any kind of ministry, whether it's playing in the band up the front or leading children's ministry or youth ministry or preaching or pastoring a congregation, if they're seeking to promote themselves rather than God, then their ministry is not true, and they should not be followed, and their ministry will ultimately bear no fruit. Now, of course, none of us is perfectly humble. We all have an ego, but we need to keep our ego in check. We need to call each other out if we think we are going on an ego trip. If we have an arrogance problem, we need to strive towards humility. We need to own up to our mistakes, confess our sins, praising others ahead of ourselves. When there's success, give the glory to the others, not to yourself. When something has failed, take the blame instead of blaming others. Jesus continues in verse 19. He says, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? 
See, they were proud that they were recipients of Moses' law. But Jesus says, who cares? What really matters is if you live it out, not if you're the recipients. And none of them truly keeps the law. And the Apostle Paul will go on to say in his letter to the Romans that the true Israelite, is the, it's, it's not about race, it's not about that, it's, it's actually about obedience. That's what the true Israelite is. The true Israelite is the one who keeps the law. It's actually even worse than this, and Jesus points this out. They're seeking to kill him. How far have they strayed? And then now, the crowd starts to think, they hear what Jesus is saying, and they think, this bloke is delusional. Look at verse 20. You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered, and said, who's trying to kill you? So Jesus makes this claim, but they've got no idea what he's talking about. The people who are listening are probably not part of any plot, uh, the, the ones who are plotting are in the background somewhere. Most of the crowd here are just pilgrims. And there's no examples of uh, this idea of demon possession in the Gospel of John, but there are plenty of examples of uh, people calling Jesus like a, a person who looks like he's demon-possessed. And this must be how he speaks and performs miracles. Now, this is partly cultural. In the Jewish culture at that time, it was kind of a, you know, um, a way to to mock someone just to say they're demon-possessed. they're demon-possessed. And, and they're a bit mad, you know. And we do this in Australia, believe it or not, if you just think about it. We have a similar equivalent. We, we, you know, we say, you know, he's a stubby short of a six-pack, this guy, you know. The elevator does not go all the way to the top, you know. The lights are on, but nobody's home. A few crumbs short of a biscuit, you know. A few French fries short of a Happy Meal. There's a village somewhere looking for an idiot. The wheel is spinning, but the hamster is dead. Not the sharpest tool in the box. He's got a screw loose. Not firing on all cylinders. He's not the brightest crayon in the box. My favourite, a few kangaroos loose in the top paddock. Anyway, this is what we say in Australia, and this is what they're saying about Jesus. Couldn't get a job as a speed hump, this guy, you know. Wouldn't know if he's Arthur or Martha. So Jesus responds to him in verse 21 and he says, I did one miracle and you are all amazed. And we do, he doesn't actually specify what miracle he's talking about here. But based on what he goes on to say about healing on the Sabbath, he's probably talking about the time when he healed the man in the pool in Bethesda, which occurred on the Sabbath. And there was outrage about this because he supposedly, supposedly broke a law. And Jesus points back to that and remembers just how amazed they all were. Let me me read it, verse 22, the next bit. Yet because, he says, yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. So you're willing to do that. Then verse 23, now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? And sometimes the laws did come into conflict with each other. The law commanded that boys be circumcised on the eighth day. Well, what do you do if the eighth day is the Sabbath? Which law do we keep and which law do we break? And they worked out, oh, it's fine to keep the law of circumcising on the eighth day. And this is fine. And Jesus is saying, that seems reasonable. So why is this not reasonable too? Why is healing on the Sabbath not reasonable too? And Jesus is using a kind of a lesser to greater argument, which was common at the time. If you see it acceptable in the Lord to do the lesser thing, then why not do the greater thing? 
Of course, Jesus is amazing them all by showing that he's not only is keeping the law, but he's fulfilling its deeper meaning. He's going to the heart of the law. He's not liberalising it. He's not throwing it away. He's not moving on saying that's not really what God thinks anymore. He's just going to the heart of it. He's saying, I'm not going to do away with it and, and just sort of reject it. He's the embodiment of truth. He's the living word. And he does not play loose and fast with the truth. He's the man who speaks the words of his Father in heaven. He doesn't pick and choose which bits he likes and which bits he doesn't like. So Jesus concludes with these words in verse 24, verse 24, Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. And the statement from Jesus is targeted at two levels. On the one hand, he's speaking to the crowd, and on the other hand, he's speaking to you and me as we read this in the Gospel of John. If the Jews had judged him in a godly and righteous way, rather than in a superficial way, looking at mere appearances, you know, saying he didn't even go to the right rabbi school, or in other places in the Gospels it says, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth, someone said, and then, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? You know, people are always questioning him and look, reading the surface. If they stopped looking at appearances, they would have known that Jesus really was the Son of God and that he really did fulfill and live out the law. And so, as we finish, Jesus says, stop judging. And this word judging, he's bringing up this courtroom language now because there is a trial on. The whole, the whole of Gospel of John is this, this trial of Jesus and it's leading to his eventual execution this is a trial already in motion it's his trial and there's a death sentence hanging over him and how this ongoing argument about who really is jesus will become for him a matter of life and death let's finish and i'll pray for us oh lord god we thank you uh, that you are not jesus was not a, a loony and is not a loony, but is our Lord. And thank you that his words speak life and are to us and are amazing. We pray that we can trust in him, that we can live out our faith and be obedient. Amen.